Well, I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We will be reading verses 1 through 16 this morning in John 11. And as is my custom, um, especially in the New Testament, we're reading out of the New King James Version. God's Word declares, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped her, his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. Then his disciples says, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about him taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. You may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather and to open your word together. And Lord, as always, whenever we look into and peer into your truth here, we need your help, your assistance. For it is our tendency to put into your word our ideas, our thoughts, our philosophies, and not to draw from your word your ideas and your thoughts. And Lord, we want to conform our way to you. We want to conform our thoughts to you. We want to conform our beliefs to your word. And we pray for your help. We pray that you might certainly guard this time from error, but that you might also um, guard it from incredulity. We might truly come to you ready to believe and take your word as truth to allow it to impact our life. Lord, we know that the evil one does not want this to happen. We'll bring into our minds all sorts of things to distract us. Things we have seen, heard, said even in days and weeks past to keep us from considering our ways and understanding your truth and conforming ourselves to it. And so Lord, we pray that you might intervene. 
and to keep us keenly focused upon your truth this morning. That our minds, whether young or old, might be dedicated this hour to discovery of what you would have by your spirit through your word to reveal to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, John chapter 11, we are introducing a completely different event. We have kind of been drawing together a series of events that are linked together in Jerusalem. We are now outside of Jerusalem. We are way over on the other side of the Jordan where Jesus was first baptized by John. We found this out at the end of chapter 10. And uh, Jesus returns there near in the, around the Sea of Galilee, uh, the northern stretches of the Jordan River as it empties out of the Sea of Galilee. You would have had plenty of ample opportunity maybe even to uh, draw in some of the people from the Galilean region. Um, but certainly he is safe from the crowd in Jerusalem. Do you remember the last time we saw that crowd in Jerusalem? They were encircling him. Uh, trying to keep him from escaping, surrounding him, that they on at least two occasions, if not more, were prepared to stone him to death. And by Christ's words, and then finally by simply his effort to escape out of their hand, when they tried to seize him, uh, we find him leaving Jerusalem, he will not return to Jerusalem until it's time for him to be crucified. He's not really hiding out. He is really continuing in ministry there. And in fact, it says at the end of chapter 10 that many came to him at that place. So he was not away from all crowds, just from that Jerusalem crowd that had been hardened by the religious leaders. And now in this new location, a familiar location to many in, in Israel because of John the Baptist's ministry there, seemed to be the center point of his ministry, they were more than happy to come and hear the teaching and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is there in a much more safe environment, a much more receptive environment. It says that while they came to him, uh, their conclusion was that John didn't perform a sign, but all things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. And so it was a very effectual ministry there as well. It was necessary. This is much more than just Jesus uh, escaping and hiding from his enemies. He is still engaged in ministry, and it's going to come out very important later on when we get into his description of ministering and being active while it is still light. And right now it is still the light period of his ministry. There is still opportunity for him to minister, and he does so effectively, but he goes to those who are receptive to his ministry. I won't want you to miss that. It, he repeatedly has gone in Jerusalem. He has performed great wonders there, um, not necessarily because of the faith of the people there. Remember, at, when we read through Matthew and other portions of Scripture, as he goes to the outlying villages, as he goes to the towns, even up into Samaria, there is a qualifying phrase, if you have faith, if you have faith. When we went to the Nazareth, we said, well, he couldn't do very much because they didn't have much faith. 
And so it was always conditioned upon their faith. When, we, when he arrives in Jerusalem, it wasn't conditioned upon their faith. In fact, he comes up to people that had no expectation of all, didn't even request to be healed, and he heals them, but always on the Sabbath, picking the fight that he wanted to pick to, to demonstrate that who he is, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that he is Lord of Israel, that he is the King of Kings, that he is the one that they should all be worshiping, that he is the one that the religious leaders should have been anticipating and should have been kneeling before, but instead were declaring themselves to be his enemy. And so now he's back in those, that region where it was a much more receptive area, who were not preconditioned against him, but rather were receptive to John's ministry. Remember that the leaders of Jerusalem didn't like John either. Well, if they didn't like the forerunner of the Christ, they're not going to like the Christ either. And so here, these are those who have been baptized by John. And now they are seeing the one that John witnessed. Here is, behold, the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. This is the one that they come to and now hear and see and engage in and believe in him. And so Jesus Christ is in full ministry when word comes to him. And John takes time to introduce us to a family uh, of likely all single individuals, uh, Lazarus, which is kind of a nickname. Um, it's actually Eleazar. That's the formal Jewish name, um, but they called him Lazarus, probably because his father's name was also Eleazar. And we do that, right? When, when the child is named after the father, they, they change it a little bit so you know which one you're talking to. And so... Um, uh, uh, whether it's for us they add a Y or little or something or they use the formal. So um, in my wife's family, it's James. I think there's like eight generations of James. So it's James, Jim, Jimmy, now we're back to James. Um, by then James is dead because, you know, we're now in the fourth generation. So we're back to James. And I don't know if his kid's going to be Jimmy and the next one, Jim, or and then back to James. So um, we do that too. And so Lazarus... Um, is there with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. We're, they're going to come into play again in the next chapter when we get to the anointing of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and we've already had an encounter with them previously as well um, in another gospel. And so we have this ongoing relationship between Jesus and this uh, family group there in Bethany. Bethany is... Um, a, near the Mount of Olives, um, east of Jerusalem. And so you can go out from Bethany into the Mount of Olives pretty easily. You can oversee Jerusalem and the, and the uh, Mount there. And so this is where they reside, in the region of Bethany. And all this has given us is introduction to this so that the readers that John is rehearsing this before know who we're dealing with. And now we do. And uh, he... he presages with the anointing. It was already happening. He's writing this history. And the anointing is something most all the church knew about. But the resurrection of Lazarus was not something that everyone knew about. And that may seem odd to you and to I. And in fact, you do not find it in Matthew. You do not find it recorded in Mark or in Luke. It is only here in John. 
And many commentators have tried to settle that. Some simply said, this is just a story made up by John. Um, well, each of the gospel writers has certain accounts that they want to emphasize. Uh, and a resurrection from the dead is a pretty substantial one. I think, well, certainly they would all want to include that, especially with the impact that Lazarus is going to have on what's going to transpire later on during the Passion Week, which is really just probably a few weeks away from this event. Um, but uh, remember that Luke had also the resurrection of the, the, the widow of Nain and her son. Her, I'm sorry, her son's resurrection, uh, which the other ones did not account for. So we have other accounts that are also substantial by the other gospel writers. Um, some have said that, well, maybe not all the disciples were with Jesus at this point. Um, and there is some textual uh, possibilities there particularly that uh, you don't find Peter speaking in any of this passage. Uh, Peter is, is, and in fact, there's actually kind of a gap in all of the Gospels where Peter kind of never says anything for a little while. And many people feel that that gap means that Peter might have gone somewhere, uh, either on a mission that Jesus assigned him, or perhaps um, some responsibilities with his home, um, but uh, that he may not have been here on this occasion and thus, since Mark is Peter's version of the gospel, Peter wouldn't have included it because he wasn't there. Again, there are lots of possibilities as to why or what happened, but it's evident from here that most of the people in the first century church hadn't really heard about this account, which wouldn't surprise you. It wouldn't surprise me because of there's so much information in these last few weeks. And the focus, of course, would have to be on the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, and this is simply an event that happens just a, maybe even only a week and a half, two weeks before, certainly not very far before the event of our Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, so we have several theories, um, but we have a confidence in God's word. Uh, we have no copies of, God's, of the Gospel of John without this uh, account, and so we should have full confidence in it. And uh, we have a lot of factual information here that fits the times and uh, fits the event. And so we find that uh, Lazarus uh, gets sick, very sick. Uh, this is not just a head cold. This is, this is a life-threatening illness. The sisters apparently realize the significance of this, and they send word to Jesus. They know where Jesus has gone, uh, and so they send word to Christ there, and uh, that the one you love is sick. They don't even name Lazarus. They said the one you love is sick. Very sick. With an indication asking him to come and participate in his healing some way. Now, does that require the Lord to travel there? No, of course not. We've already had one indication, one time when, when because of their faith, Jesus Christ says, oh, your, your servant is healed. And as the man heads home, or your son is healed on another occasion, um, they find out the day and the hour, and sure enough, that's when that person is healed. So Jesus Christ doesn't need to be physically present to heal someone. So we understand that the request um, really is just saying they're sick. Lazarus, the one you love, is sick. What can you do about it? They're trusting in Jesus Christ to accomplish something here, and Christ could very easily have sent the messenger back saying, he's well, go back home. He could have easily healed Lazarus from a distance. 
That wasn't the issue. Where he was physically on the earth was not the issue at all. He's already demonstrated he is Lord over all the earth. And so his, his physical location wasn't the relevant issue here. And that's what's going to come out strongly in our passage today. And so we come to pick up in verse 4. And Jesus is going to respond to this message. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, a very difficult phrase to translate. We're going we're to uh, put some work into that. But for the glory of God, the Son of God may be glorified through this. And so here's the difficulty with that first phrase. Um, let me do it a little bit more literally. Um, this sickness is not with a view toward death. It is not that it precludes Lazarus from ever dying. It is that there is a purpose to this sickness. This sickness has an objective, a view. Literally a view that is not towards death. That is, its objective, its purpose, isn't for Lazarus' demise. Its purpose is different. This sickness has a purpose. Now, this is something we also we've already confronted. This is one of the minor themes we're going to catch throughout the Gospel of John. And that is, why do things happen? <laughs> Remember the disciples asking the question, why is this man born blind? Is it his sin or his parents' sin? One of those two people had to have been sinners. One of those three had to have been sinners. Because this man was born blind, and that certainly is the evidence that God has struck them for this sin, some sin. That was the predominant teaching of their day, and it's still taught in some circles in this day. And remember Jesus saying, that's not why this man was born blind. It wasn't because of his sin. It wasn't because of his parents' sin. This has one goal, one thing in view, and that is to glorify me. And we had this whole drawn-out occasion in Jerusalem built around this man born blind who did not request to, be, to get his sight. Remember, the disciples saw him, said, who sinned? And the guy just sitting there, oh, they're talking about me again. And they're, uh, yeah, who is the sinner? Is it me or my parents? And Jesus has a startling answer and then says, you want to see? He says, of, of course. <laughs> okay, go here, put mud on your eyes, go wash this post slow. Bam. And that becomes one of the great testifiers of Jesus in Jerusalem. Remember, he takes the Sanhedrin to task over it. It's a fine thing. This guy can do this to me, and you don't even know who he is or where he's from. What kind of leaders are you? And so this is a common theme. And so again, why is Lazarus sick? What is the view for this, what is the purpose? What, 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 why is this transpiring? And again, Jesus makes it very clear that death isn't going to be the conclusion of this illness. That doesn't mean death can't be somewhere in the intermediate thing between the illness and its conclusion. Um, death is certainly going to happen in there somewhere <laughs> because we know the story, right? Because um, the heading on the chapter is the death of Lazarus. <laughs> so you kind of know it's going to end in death. But it doesn't end in death. But you know death is involved. 
So Jesus says the view of this sickness, the purpose of the sickness isn't for Lazarus' death. The purpose of his sickness is to glorify me. I, there's another purpose. Now, does that preclude God ever using sickness for a different purpose? No. He has used sickness frequently in the Bible to punish sin. Hasn't he? Why did Miriam become leprous? Because she sinned against her brother Moses, her little brother Moses. Be careful how you treat your little brother. Where are you, Elizabeth Evelyn? Be careful how you treat your little brother. Okay, God's paying attention. So has God brought sickness on people because of their sin? Certainly. Has he brought death because of their sin? Well, all death is because of sin, but, but Herod, remember, in the book of Acts, is going to be eaten of worms in public view because he took glory to himself as if he was God instead of glorifying God in Israel. So we have many examples historically that, in fact, illness can be its purpose to punish sin. And so we don't just offhand eliminate that in our discussion of it. Uh, we don't just say that never happens anymore. That was just from the Old Testament time. Um, because, in fact, in Corinthians, we're going to be confronted with the very same problem. Some of you people are sick, and some of you have died. Why? Because your worship is tainted by your own sin. And when your worship is tainted by sin, God will judge you. And the sin of the Corinthians was that they just thought worship was all about them and they didn't need to care about anybody else. And so they came in and had their big meal while their brother over there had dried bread and water. Because that's all he could afford. They came in and ate communion together and one wouldn't wait for the other one to get there. Me, 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 me. And because their worship was all about me, 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 instead of the flock, the brethren, the body, what did happen? It's, Paul tells the Corinthians, some of you are sick, some of you are even asleep because of that sin. So repent. So, but on this occasion, Jesus says, pointedly, the purpose of this illness is not to punish sin. Okay, now we, and so, very different and so I'm not excluding that God uses illness to punish sin, that we shouldn't at least visit that when we have illness uh, striking us, that is there something in my behavior, is there something in my motivation, or something in my attitudes that weren't this? And so we come to this, and we know that the view of this is not death. It is for the glory of God. Now, by the time the message gets to Jesus, and by the time Jesus gets back to Bethany, it's going to tell us that Lazarus has already been dead, buried, for four days. Now, you can do a little logistics there and realize that the probability is that, that by the time the message got to Jesus, you could say it's too late. Lazarus is already dead, which is very possible. Possibly has already occurred. In fact, in Jesus' words a little bit later on, he's going to say Lazarus is already dead. Uh, we don't know how much, how much time transpired between the messengers coming and Christ's declaration 
Um, it was seen to be the same event, but um, it was also um, uh, possibly a two-day wait and then a two-day travel, and so I might have waited purposely until Lazarus died. But he pre prefaces this by saying this sickness, its purpose, its view is not toward death. His view is to glorify me. That the Son of God may be glorified through it, that God may be glorified. And so, and, and then John inserts this. He's going to insert this several times in these next few verses and chapters, I'm sorry, in these passages. Um, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You might say, didn't Jesus love everybody? God so loved the world that he gave his life. Isn't that in the Gospel of John? Yes. Um, but remember, we just got introduced to Lazarus by the sisters as the one whom you love is ill. And now John inserts his own phrase saying, Jesus really loved these people. You may say, well, is this on a different level scale? It's about intimacy. He had been intimately in relationship with them. That these were some of his closest friends. And that may be difficult for us to view that Jesus as having favorites. He had intimates, those that were close to him, who not only because of their faith in him, but he enjoyed them. He, he had this relationship. And, and in fact, um, John himself is going to refer to himself as the, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we know that that is, we, we have a pretty strong evidence that that is John himself. Um, does that mean that he didn't love the rest? No, this is a, a, a question of intimacy. Of the degree. We know that John was part of the inner three, that while there was 12 disciples, there were only three that went to the Mount of Transfiguration, that there were these inner three that went on with him in, the, in Gethsemane. And so we, we know that there were these. Um, and so these three, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, were ones that he was more intimate with. He had a stronger relationship with them, and John wants to reiterate that, that no way do you think Jesus isn't touched by the fact that Lazarus' illness. Jesus loved him. He isn't untouched by the fact that Martha and Mary are really worried about their brother. These things are not, it's not that he is callous to these people. It appears to you and I, to the other disciples there, it appears to them and even, even to the, the messengers that Jesus is just callous. Doesn't he care? We have a little song, Does Jesus Care? Doesn't Jesus care? Because all outward evidence is that Jesus is just, oh, okay, sick, well, we'll deal with that later. John inserts the statement to demonstrate the tenderness that Jesus has for those in trouble. He loved Lazarus. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. He knew what this was going to do to them. But it was necessary, in fact, best that he not be there that they endure the misery, the agony, the questioning, that they go through this whole deep valley of the shadow of death and learn. They are walking through this 
And Jesus isn't, isn't insensitive to it. It's not that he doesn't care. Oh no, Jesus loves them. This is the passage, this is the event next week that we're going to visit with that little two-letter word, two-letter, two two-word verse. Jesus wept. He loved them, and yet he did nothing, it would seem, to intervene for them. Mary and Martha are worried. They're deeply concerned, enough to send messengers to Jesus saying, the one you love is sick. He's really ill or we wouldn't have sent to you. Lazarus himself is struggling physically. He's going to experience physical death. And you and I and the disciples could stand there and find fault with Jesus. And John says, oh no, Jesus loved them. Do not be deceived. Just because it seems that God is callous does not mean that he ever is. Just because it seems that God is not there seeing your hurt doesn't mean he doesn't know that hurt and has a plan to intervene in that hurt. Just because it seems that he doesn't care doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. These are all what you see because you don't see the greatest picture. You don't see the end. And Jesus tells the disciples the end of this illness He declares the end from the beginning. And this is the work of God. This is what God does. He declares the end from the beginning. Jesus sees the end and he declares it. And brethren, he has declared it to you and to I. We know the end, don't we? Do you know your end? Oh, I don't know the specific... I'm not asking about the specific circumstances of what will be your demise, your falling asleep. But we know where it goes, don't we? We we know that that is not the end. Don't we? I'm waiting for someone to say yes or amen or something. Don't we? Thank you. (laughs) It's okay. You You can respond. We know the end. God has declared it to us. We know there's a resurrection of the just and the unjust. The unjust to eternal punishment and the just to life everlasting in his presence with all the marvels and joys and wonderments of the new heaven and the new earth. We know the end. We know that death isn't it's the, the purpose. That the death of the saints is an intermediate step. Does Jesus not care? Oh, yes, he cares. He loves us. He loves these three. They are wrapped up and engulfed in this this horrible event that is going to challenge everything they think and believe about this friend of theirs, Jesus, who who they believe is their Messiah, who who they believe is God. Don't you care? In the next verse, it says Jesus didn't do anything for two days. Didn't say that. It says Jesus waited two days. He was involved in ministry elsewhere. When he heard he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And 
God waited. And that has got to be one of the most frustrating parts of the Christian life is to recognize the times when God waits. We want God to act on our behalf at our bequest. I want this, I want it now, and we live in an age of instant gratification on a level unknown to man in any time of history. You can't wait 20 seconds for a page to load without complaining on your computer. Am I right? When I watch a video with my, uh, uh, with my daughter, and, and if the little thing circle comes up, and we have to wait, we have to take a breath for five seconds for it to buffer. Is that called buffering? For it to load. So, I, I mean, as soon as the little thing goes up, oh, click, 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 and then we can't watch that video. Because we have never learned to wait. And so what God demands that we wait. And in fact, God himself waits. We are infuriated. We have every accusation against him. What? He doesn't love me. Oh, he loves you. And that is why he waits. To fulfill his purposes. Perhaps the better question is, why aren't we willing to endure his waiting, that we might glorify his name even more when the end has been accomplished. Can my suffering magnify his glory? We have an entire book of the Bible dedicated to this very theme. It's called the book of Job. Don't we? Why did Job suffer? Why did it seem like God was nowhere? This evil upon evil upon evil upon evil. And then your four friends come and three of them giving you error. And, uh, and your wife says, just curse God and die. And, and where does God show up? At the end. And then Job goes, oh. I'm so sorry. How many times are we going to stand before God and say, oh God, I'm so sorry. I didn't look forward. I didn't really trust that you're a good God, that you had great things in store. I, I couldn't see past today and the pain I'm feeling today and the, and the suffering I'm enduring today and the opposition I am, I am, I'm encountering today. Uh, Lord, I, I just never looked beyond today. Oh, God loves you when you're in that condition. He loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but he waited two days because he knew the end. And he knew that there would be greater joy than there was suffering. There would be greater faith than there was agony. There would be greater <laughs> power of testimony than there was fear and worry. So Jesus waited. Do not think that God has abandoned you because he's waiting. He's waiting for the right time to do great things in your life. Even if it's not fully in this life. I have some heroes in my life. I miss them because they're not here anymore. 
I never told them while they were here that they were my heroes because that's not my nature. But they were. And I miss Bud Johnson. And you'll never see a book written about him. You'll never see accolades about him. The man was faithful, though, but he suffered. He suffered things and, and, and just kept serving the Lord. He served the Lord and served the Lord and did it joyfully. And the agony he had to go through in ministry and in his family, but he just kept serving the Lord. And by his ministry, you'd never know that all that stuff had happened to him in his life. Um, but it's taught me that I don't look at circumstances to have my joy. I have it from this. I don't, I don't wait upon... Um, worldly things to decide to be faithful to God in ministry, uh, I'm going to keep serving him. Whether it's hard or easy, whether it seems to have bearing much fruit or seems to be fruitless sometimes, I'm just hitting my head against a wall like Ezekiel, um, I'm going to be faithful. And a guy like Bud Johnson taught me that. And there are others, and these are the men I value. But God's glorified in them. And I believe that those are the men who will be called well done, good and faithful servant at the end. That they endured and stayed faithful. They are part of the cloud of witnesses to instruct me on how to be a faithful minister. Not the guys with the mega church that writes all the books and has all the videos and has all the church growth conferences. Those aren't the guys. Those are like one in a million. The likelihood of me being in that kind of ministry is slim to none. Because I won't compromise the message and even the method. It's the guys that faithfully endured that instruct me. And God is glorified through them. And so the Lord waits. And we come to this key verse, really, of this passage that God waits to glorify himself in the circumstances. He waits till Lazarus is dead. Not because he doesn't care, but because he does care. Because he loves Lazarus, loves Martha, loves Mary. And he wants them to enter into a deeper, fuller, more significant ministry than they ever imagined possible. They are going to be the testifiers of Jesus that's going to penetrate the church, not just in one century, but in every century of the church. And thus, we already are introduced, the Mary, the one you all know who anointed Jesus with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. That one. What prompted her? Jesus loved her. And she endured. And in the end, worshipped Jesus Christ we will see in a couple of weeks. Well, this created a problem with, oh man, my, my all right, I got through the point one. <clears throat> I have six more. We're in trouble. <laughs> Listen fast and I'll preach even faster, okay? So here comes the disciples and Jesus says, it's time to go. And they're like, go where? And they're like, we're going back to Jerusalem. We're going to Bethany. He's like, that's trouble. He says, well, Lazarus is asleep. Well, he's going to get better because he's resting. That's good. 
you know, he's getting good sleep, good, you know, it sounds like things are progressing in the right way. Clueless that what Jesus just described them as Lazarus is already dead. So two days have transpired, and in the midst of this, we have this response of Jesus to the risks of ministry. So the disciples want to remind Jesus of the risks. There's great risk. Um, They're trying to kill you. Uh, This is where all your enemies are. Hey, things are happening here. All right, we're over here. The disciples of John are believing in you. We're, We're seeing multitudes coming to you. This seems like a really good plan to stay right here and just multiply ministry. It seems like things are happening. Whenever we go to Jerusalem, you're running away by the end of the day. They're, they're chasing you with rocks. Ah! You know, you're, you're, you're sleep, slipping out. You're, you're sneaking away. This seems to be a better plan to just stay here, Lord. And Jesus says, oh no, you don't understand. The night is coming. And we are children of the light. Of the day. And we seize hold of opportunities to minister while they are there in the times of light. He says, we're not going to avoid it. Uh, We're going to go and we're going to pick another fight. Because this is the hour of the day. So we're going to walk in the day. We're not going to stumble. We're going to walk in the light. We are not going to falter in our ministry. His purpose was not to build a great big following on the other side of this Jordan. His purpose was to come and die for the sins of all. His purpose was to come and conquer sin and death for all time. His purpose was to come that he might qualify himself to enter into the heavenly places and break open the scroll for the end. We're going to fulfill our job. And it is simple to stay here in safety and comfort and enjoy what we would all describe as very fruitful ministry rather than to take all the risks to going up there. And the disciple says, why are you risking it? Well, the sickness doesn't have a view to death. And so the disciples, along with the fact that Lazarus sleeps, was like, well, he's not going to die. He must be getting better. So we have no reason to risk ourselves going back over there. And they've totally misconstrued the whole thing. The fact is that Lazarus is dead in those two days. Um, And in fact, probably died even as Jesus was... had just heard back in verse 4. Because it certainly would not have taken them very long to get there. But Jesus says, no, this is, it's good that this happened. And I want to jump way ahead. I'm skipping a lot out. I might have to have another sermon out of this. I don't know. We'll see. We jump ahead. Verse 15 says, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. That you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Jesus loved them even in their hurting, but he waited. 
not because their hurt made him glad, but because he knew that there was a valley to travel through to get to the glory on the other side. And now he realizes that this wasn't only necessary for Lazarus and Mary and Martha, but it was necessary also for his disciples who are still pretty clueless about it all. We're still viewing his ministry from a human side. Let's stay here where it's comfortable. Let's stay where it seems to be profitable. Let's stay where we're, it seems to be, we're getting, where it's fruitful here. Why should we move on? I had several people ask me that when I left Rio Rancho to come and start this church uh, at Charity Baptist. Says, Why would you leave now? It's, it's all go here. It's, it's, it's growing and, and you got a good spirit. You got a good group. You got, everything seems to be going the right way. And it's like, well, that's the wisdom of men. That's the wisdom of the disciples. And Jesus says, no, it's the daytime. We need to engage, 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 press on. He says, and I'm glad I waited. I'm glad that Lazarus has died because you need to be taught something. So for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they had to experience something that the disciples haven't experienced. The disciples were clueless this whole time. They didn't know what these three whom Jesus loved were going through, the hurt that they were engaged in, that, that they had to endure so that God could be glorified down the line. Just like the mind born blind endured an entire life of blindness to glorify God. But God loved him. And so he says, I'm glad that I wasn't there to heal his sickness because you wouldn't have counted that as much. But now that you recognize he's been dead and dead for a while, now you can believe. And here is another level of belief that we want to talk about. Remember in John, one of the major themes is going from belief to belief. You might say, well, the disciples already believe in Jesus. But you hear Jesus says, we're going to go that you may believe. It seems like he's saying that the disciples don't believe, and that is true. Or they would not grasp what he said earlier. This is all happening to glorify my name. But they didn't want God to glorify himself through Lazarus' resurrection and all that was going to transpire in, in the Passion Week there in Jerusalem. They preferred the comfort. They, they were enjoying themselves. It wasn't very far from home. These guys were mostly from the region of Galilee. Uh, this is all very comfortable and good. Let's just stay here. Kind of reminds you of Peter at the Transfiguration. Let's just stay here. This is really cool. Let's build some altars and why go on? Let's just finish it right here. We'll just enjoy this from now on. No, there's, night is coming. These are the days of salvation. Today is a day of salvation, the Bible says. A night is coming when none can be saved. We press on in ministry and the disciples need to learn some things. And so Jesus Christ says, I'm glad. So you can learn. What is they going to learn to believe in him on a whole other level? And this I've already talked about for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Why do we have to endure junk in this world? Why is there hard times? 
Number one, to glorify God. Job endured incredible agony. But we know because Job starts off with this, we, we get the inside story because we get to be in heaven before it's all initiated against Job of what's going on. Job has an opportunity by suffering in faith and trust in God to shut Satan's mouth. Wow. You know, we have a lot of Pentecostal people that want to go, we're going to storm Satan's camp, we're going to break down all of his stuff, and I don't find it in the Bible that we were called to do that. Um, But Job got a chance to shut Satan's mouth. And he did. Because he didn't sin against God in his suffering. We have an opportunity to glorify God. And perhaps more so in suffering than in comfort. We live comfortable lives here. It creates a certain fearfulness, it should anyway, that maybe it's so comfortable that we don't really know what believing is. Do I really believe? The disciples were in this comfort zone, and Jesus Christ says, I'm going to pull you out of it. You, you, are, you, are, you are sitting with your feet up, and the darkness is coming. This is the, this is the time of light, and don't stumble. We're not going to do this in the dark. We're going to do this in the light. We need to be pressed on in ministry. Go from where you are to where I want you to be in a greater belief. I'm glad this happened that you may believe. So is God unloving? Oh no. Is God detached from it all? Not at all. He's weeping with you. Is God insensitive? No. He loves you. And he has your interests at heart. This is the God you serve. How do we glorify him? Not by avoiding all suffering, but by rejoicing in the midst of it, by not singing against God, by saying, blessed is the name of the Lord. That's Job's words. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When things are good, I will bless him. When things are bad, I will bless him. Which one of those do you think brings God greater glory? People standing up with great success and blessing the Lord or those that you see being crushed over and over again by by the forces of this world saying, I will bless the Lord. You cannot close my mouth. Oh, this one teaches us what it means to have faith. This is the believer, without a doubt. This over here, okay, they're blessing the Lord in there. But boy, over here we know. Listen, Job over here in the state of blessedness could be accused You're only serving God because you've been blessed by him with family, wealth, good times.
But Job on this side of suffering could not be accused of anything. Even by his three quote-unquote friends. Because he endured. And God was glorified. More. There was never a question of Job's faith anymore. And so, God loves us. And when he chooses to use us to glorify his name, we should be thankful. But we should also recognize that that pathway to the end, to the view of glorifying him, will very likely, I didn't say maybe, I didn't say occasionally, I said very likely necessitate our suffering. Because we live in an evil place. We are surrounded by evil ones. This is the place where the devil prowls as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We have to engage the enemy. This is the day for the darkness is coming. That we need to be faithful. And so we are loved by God that he might teach us, that we might believe, that his work may be accomplished, and that our testimony may be multiplied. I didn't get to cover those four points very much. They're on my card, though, so I had to share them with you. That's why Jesus waited. That's why Mary, Martha, and Lazarus suffered. That's why the disciples had to risk their lives again to go to Jerusalem. That God may be glorified by the working of signs, by the teaching that he is going to give them here shortly and has already begun to give them that they might believe and that their testimony might be flawless. There are only a couple of men in Scripture that have a flawless testimony. Job was one of them. Are we prepared to have flawless testimonies? What it takes to make that happen is that we are faithful no matter what. Doesn't mean that you haven't sinned, that you haven't had mistakes, but that your faith has become flawless. I will not speak against my God. I will not blame him for my suffering. I will recognize that he will work through my suffering for his glory, for I am his child. My testimony before you will be flawless. Not because of my greatness, but because God has told me the, be- the end from the beginning. So how can I blame him who has done so much for me already and has promised, and his promises are sure to do everything else for me one day soon? Let us have a flawless testimony because of faith in a God that does wonders.
And I think the most powerful faith is a faith that will wait for the Lord's timing. And if you think this is over, when this life is over, that your waiting will be over, that's not quite accurate. I just want to share one last thing. There's a group of people right now in heaven waiting because God told them to. They're described for us in Revelation that they are the martyrs. Those who are killed for the name of Jesus. Stephen will be among that number. Who are in heaven, have been there for some 2,000, nearly 2,000 years waiting. And asking God, how long, O Lord, till you judge the earth? And Jesus said to them, wait a little while. So there's still people in heaven waiting on God. So your wait may not be over when this life is over. You may be counted one of those precious ones to give their life for the name of Jesus Christ and you will enter into the heavenly realm and join that crowd underneath the throne of God and say and cry out with them, how long, O Lord, until you judge the earth? And he'll remind you, wait a little while longer. Why is Jesus waiting? Because he loves us. And a night is coming when none can be saved. This is the light. This is the daytime. Let our ministry be multiplied for there is a limited amount of time. Because Jesus didn't say wait a long time. He says wait a little while. There's just a little while that it's going to be day. And then when night comes, the wrath of God will break forth and there will be no other salvation. Glorify God. He loves you. Serve him faithfully. Sometimes that means just wait. Wait on him. His timing is flawless. Let your faith be flawless in him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love. There's so much here in this passage, and we rejoice in it all. We see a comfort, we see a hope, but we also see a challenge here. Lord God, we thank you for it all. Teach us. We want to believe in you. More and more. Lord, we want to be willing to wait on you. You put Moses on a shelf for 40 years. Paul in Tarsus for 12 to get them ready. Lord, we can't wait a day, it seems, sometimes on you. Forgive us. Lord, we thank you that you love us, that you are hurting with us when we hurt. You're not insensitive simply because you seem to be silent, but that you are at work toward an end, an end that brings you glory and that will bring us pleasure to participate in in that day. Until that day, Lord, find us faithful, walking in the light, ministering in the daytime, For these are the last days, Lord. We see it around us. And while we pray, come quickly for our own interests, we recognize that for the interests of others, Lord, tarry. That others might 
be saved. Even if it requires us to suffer a little more. Help us to fill up your suffering. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.